0: Hey, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Christ City Church. We're thrilled that you are tuning in on uh, any of our social media platforms on Facebook, YouTube, Twitch, or over on our uh, website at ChristCityDC.org. We're really grateful that you um, are with us this morning. We pray that this morning's service is an encouragement to you, that it's, a, that it's a comfort to you as we together reflect on the words uh, from Scripture and what our faith means in light of uh, the things that we're facing today. Let me pray for us as we begin our worship. God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to gather in this way virtually, God. I pray that wherever it is that we are and all of the places that we're scattered around this city and around this world, Lord, that you would bind us together by faith, that you would remind us that we are your daughters and your sons, that um, we are dearly loved by you, that we've been rescued by you, and that from that place that you uh, have saved us for a mission in the world. God, I pray that um, that as we walk through our liturgy, as we sing and as we pray and as we read scripture, God, that you would stir our hearts' affections towards you, Jesus. We offer this up as an offering to you, in Christ's name. Amen.
1: So I'm going to read the scripture for us this morning. Um, Today's reading is from Ephesians 2, verses 13 to 22. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Will you pray with me? God, we thank you for this morning and we thank you for the time that we have to Uh, to be together in our separate spaces. We know, Spirit, that you are not confined by buildings or spaces, but you are with us and you connect us to one another. And we pray this morning um, for the remainder of our service. We pray for Matthew as he comes to preach. We pray for the Kids City lesson and for all the children who are a part of our community and watching this service. Uh, We pray that you would speak to them. We thank you, God, for your love for us, for your faithfulness to us, and for your goodness. We ask and pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Amen. Uh, Welcome, Uh, good morning again, church. Uh, My name is Matthew Watson. I serve as one of the pastors here at Christ City. And I'm really grateful to all of you for tuning into the stream. Um, In addition to our Christ City family here in DC, We know that there's a number of you following our stream uh, across the country and around the world, and we are thankful for all of you. Um, I want to uh, come back this week as we continue our series. Two weeks ago, we began a new sermon series called Being Church, Becoming a Called Community. Um, And the text for this series is the New Testament book of Ephesians, which is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus. And one of the themes of this letter is unity, unity of the church, a unity that was bound up in the origins of the church and the mission of the church. The unity of the church was bound up in the origins of the church, Jesus' work on the cross and in the resurrection, and the mission of the church to be a witness to God's love and salvation to the world. It was these dual vocations of origin and mission that anchored the church in Jesus' work and Jesus' mission. Paul wanted to make sure that the church fully understood these points and and fleshed out these points in their living together, because Paul understood that unity was going to be one of the hallmarks of the church's witness to God's power. And the context into which Paul is writing is uh, one experiencing ethnic and cultural tensions. The city of Ephesus itself uh, was a city of ethnic and cultural and religious complexity. And the churches were beginning to experience the stress and strain that can happen in cross-cultural settings. It's important to remember that that, uh, as the church began as a movement, it began within the Jewish tradition. And most of the early converts uh, and leaders had Jewish backgrounds. But quickly, non-Jews began converting to Christianity. As Justin noted in our opening Uh, Sermon in this series, he said, in Paul's day, the churches in Asia Minor were dealing with ethnic and cultural stressors between Jews and Gentiles. This exacerbated into violent conflicts between Jewish revolutionary forces and Roman occupiers. And the Christians that Paul was writing to were wrestling with what happens when a church that worships a Jewish rabbi and was originally almost all Jewish became a majority Gentile. What does that mean for the culture and practices of the church? And what does that mean for the future of the church? In many regards, this remains the question for us too. How do we as a community anchor ourselves in the work of Jesus while joining in the Spirit's work in the world and do so in a manner that displays the reconciling, unifying, uniting love of God in the midst of our differences and our diversity? And this morning, I want, to, I want to reflect on how we uh, are to be the church and to do so given the beautiful differences we have and the beautiful diversity that is represented within Christ City and our city more broadly. Differences in race and ethnicity, economic and educational backgrounds, social status, gender and identity, politics and culture and countries of origin. With all of these differences and so many others that I didn't name, how do we display to each other and to an unbelieving world, the good news of Christ, and any sort of unity that might be found given the level of diversity and difference that exists in our community. I believe that Ephesians 2 has a response to that question, in part because the church in Ephesus lived into a response. Uh, And that response, it it hinged on um, two messages that come from Ephesians 2. Those two messages are, One, God in Christ has given us a new humanity, and two, that God through Christ has brought us into a new human family. Let me say that again. God in Christ has given us a new humanity, and God through Christ has brought us into a new human family. Let's tackle the first point first. Paul begins chapter 2, by outlining the ways that people lived life apart from Jesus. He says in verses 1 and 2, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air. Now, the ruler of the kingdom of the air, it's a title for the enemy, for for Satan in this context. And what Paul is saying is that before Christ came into our lives, well, that, that wasn't life at all. That was death. He uses the strongest, starkest words he can invoke. He says, you were dead. Any sort of living that was done, it was simply following the death-induced pattern of the world rather than the life-giving pattern of Jesus. Paul says, not only were you dead, but you followed the ways of the world. He'd go on to say in verse three that we followed the thoughts and the desires of the world as well. Not long after Lisa and I moved from California to Memphis, we found ourselves in in a home Bible study. I just joined the staff of a church and was still really new in the church and to the city. The folks in the small group were, were nice, which was good, because we were really anxious to make friends. Uh, and the study was on the book of Acts, and we'd gotten to the part in Acts chapter 2 where the author, Luke, begins describing the new church community. Um, and the part in verse 42 where it says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer, it goes on to say, the signs and wonders and all believers were together and they had everything in common. They sold their property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And as the discussion wound on in our small group, we began to consider what it would look like for us today to be moved by the generosity of God to demonstrate such generosity within the life of our church to the degree that we could eliminate poverty. And I remember one guy in the group, he was so taken aback by the question. He was actually insulted by it. And I remember him kind of outlining how the first century church believed that Jesus was going to return at any moment so they didn't need to work hard or save money or prepare for the future. So of course they could sell their stuff and give their money away, but that's not our reality. So these verses don't actually apply to us. And I distinctly remember him saying, that's a non sequitur, which is a Latin phrase meaning it does not follow. And I knew what it meant, but i had never heard anyone use it in a conversation before. And when he finished with his rant, It was just a sadness that that, that fell on me and fell into the room because here was someone who was living and thinking, continued to follow the ways of the world with little interest in considering what Jesus might have to say about how we spend our money for the sake of the kingdom. You see, what Paul is highlighting in Ephesians 2 is that this is where all of us were. Before following Jesus, our lives were governed by the patterns of the world, the, the way that we thought about ourselves or our futures or our money or our neighbors or our enemies. They were all dictated by the world and the world's pursuits rather than shaped by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And that way of living is death. You and I, were, we're dead in our transgressions and sins in which we used to live passage continues in verse 4, but because of his great love for us, two amazing words in the scriptures, but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved, but because of his great love for us. If it was a church in here, somebody would be saying, but because of his great love for us. This is gospel words. This is good news. But because of his great love, God, rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ. Paul contrasts the death that is offered by the world with the life that is offered here through Jesus. Paul wants to remind the church in Ephesus and by extension us that a fundamental change has occurred because of God's love and mercy extended to us. We're no longer dead because of sin and the enemy's oppression, but we are now alive because of Christ's great love towards us. And that exchange has ushered in a fundamental change in our lives, a change that alters our living, our thinking, our relating. It, al- it alters our life's trajectory. There is now a new orienting center to our lives that's affecting every other aspect of our lives um, Lisa and I were recounting to some friends uh, recently the story about um, uh, when Nathan our oldest son was born it was a few days uh, ahead of our due date and our last doctor's visit before um, our due date and we learned that there had um, that there was a complication in the pregnancy uh, and we're, we're, we were going to have to schedule a c-section and we were learning all of this news in what had become just a really routine prenatal visit. And we're bombarded with the news, and it sounds really startling to us. And then after delivering this news uh, in a very matter-of-fact way, the doctor just sort of casually opens up her calendar and says, so uh, w- would you like to schedule the delivery for Monday? Uh, like we're scheduling coffee. And Lisa and I were standing there, and we're like a little stunned, and we're like, I, I, I don't, I would not thinking that that's what I was going to do when I woke up this morning is schedule the arrival of my child. So we kind of look at the calendar and we realize, okay, Monday, that's Halloween. And I will confess to you, I'm a little bit suspicious and I feel like, nah, it's just bad mojo. So now nah, Monday's not good, but Tuesday's better. Cause in our minds, we're thinking that's November 1st, that's all saints day. Praise the Lord. We can do that. So we go through the weekend, Monday comes, Monday goes trick or treat, Tuesday rolls around. And by the end of the day, I'm a father a fundamental change has occurred. My status has changed. And from that point on, I made decisions differently. I thought differently. I viewed money and work and future differently. I looked at my wife differently. I looked at my neighbors in my neighborhood differently. I looked at my own parents differently. There was a difference in the way that I lived and I thought because a new relationship had entered my world. But because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ. Paul is helping us connect the dots and is saying that you were dead, but now you have life. An extraordinary transformation has occurred because of a relationship with Jesus. But what Paul wants to ensure that we understand is that we didn't secure this life on our own, He hammers this point in verse five. He says, it's by grace you have been saved. And again, in verse eight of chapter two, he says, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this isn't from yourselves. It's a gift of God. The way by which life has come to you is from the God of love through his grace. It's a gift. You didn't work for it. You didn't labor for it. Your best thinking and ingenuity didn't help you arrive at this place of life and liberation. It was God's grace. And God's grace alone. God did the work, not you. God was merciful, not you. It was God's love, not yours. And this is good news because it frees us from the belief that we need to somehow earn God's approval. That's just not true. God was the initiator, He was the first mover in our lives, and it was free and motivated exclusively by His great love towards you and towards me. It's by grace. It's always grace, grace that took us from death to life in Christ. It was God's grace that ushered us into the new humanity. However, Paul's argument, it doesn't stop there. This new life has a purpose and a function. He would continue in verse 10, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Stated differently, he's saying that there's work for you to do. This new humanity that you've, been, uh, that you've stepped into by grace through faith is not only an identity to enjoy, but a work to steward. And from there, Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus begins laying out what that work is and takes the turn to unfolding that our new humanity in Christ is for a new human family centered on Christ. Christ. In verses 11 through 13, Paul is noting that within the church, there are now those who are from Jewish backgrounds and those who are from Gentile or non-Jewish backgrounds. And he's naming the deep divisions that existed between these two groups, divisions that have historic hostilities between them, but that because of Jesus, these two groups are being grafted into a new family of faith. And the centerpiece of what Paul arrives at is in verses 14 through 16. For he himself, Jesus, is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. Paul is using a technical term in verse 14, dividing wall of hostility. He's not simply or or not only speaking metaphorically. He isn't saying there was tension between these two groups, so much so it was as if there was a dividing wall between them, and not just any wall, but a hostile one. He's not only speaking in poetic terms, he's actually speaking in concrete terms. What Paul is referencing is a physical wall that existed between Jews and Gentiles. And the place where it existed was in the temple in Jerusalem. The very place where people were to go in order to be near to the presence of God. The place where uh, people were to go in order to worship God. There in the temple was a wall that was built to keep out Gentiles and only allow Jews in. In the Jewish temple in Jerusalem, there were a series of courts or courtyards uh, where uh, walls separated the different courtyards. And as you moved through each courtyard, you got progressively closer to the holiest place of the temple, which was called, by the way, the Holy of Holies, in case you didn't know if it was the holiest. And at the outermost was the court of Gentiles. It was the first one and was the farthest away from the Holy of Holies. That was the farthest that the Gentiles could go. It's like keeping people out on your sidewalks and don't don't come, I don't even want you into my house, don't come in my yard, you just stay out there. Matter of fact, the sidewalk might be too close, why don't you step into the street? Archaeologists have found an inscription on the wall of the outermost court, just outside the court of Gentiles. And it says this, whoever is captured past this point will have only himself to blame for his subsequent death. That's inscribed on the wall, leading into the temple where people would go to worship God. That's hostility. That's a wall of hostility, a real physical wall, demarcating real physical hostility in the place intended to foster worship of the God of love. This is why, in the verse just prior, in verse 13, Paul writes, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away, Those of you that weren't even allowed into the first court, you who were very far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. The the, the outermost gate and the outermost court, that's where you were. But Christ said, no, that's not what I intended and brought us near by his own sacrifice that he took on in his body. The hostility represented in and written on that wall. And he destroyed it. Why? Why would he do that? The Bible tells us exactly why. Ephesians 4, verses 14 through 16. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, making peace and in one body to reconcile them both to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. We are called to live out our new lives in Christ, our new humanity, in the context of this new human family that God has formed through the cross. And this is what Paul is calling the Ephesians to know and to do. And it is what God is calling us to know and to do. We, Christ City, are called to live out our new humanity in Christ in the context of this new human family that God has formed through the cross. Paul would finish out this chapter by reminding the church, those from Jewish backgrounds and those from Gentile backgrounds, that now they are one in Christ. And in Christ, this new enterprise is being built on the completed work of Christ. Verse 23, and in him, Jesus, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit, a dwelling of God. Paul is continuing to use temple imagery, He's saying that the temple, that place where we once thought God dwelt, that physical place, that place with hostile walls and hostile signs that kept some folks out and gave other people access, that's not the place where God lives. But now, because of Jesus, God has taken up residence in you, in the midst of your life and your collective lives as the family of God. Church, if we're not careful, we will continue to erect walls of hostility. We will fall back on thinking and living as the world does. Now, we're not in Ephesus. We're in the United States of America. And the dividing walls of hostility that we erect in this country have historically been around race and the myth of white supremacy. A myth that in so, so many ways has permeated not just our culture, but the white church in America. I grew up in a Southern Baptist church while I don't identify with that tradition any longer, there are parts of it for which I'm grateful and other parts for which I'm not. When I was in college, I was a part of a Baptist campus ministry. I went on to attend a Southern Baptist seminary. The mother church for Southern Baptists is the first Baptist church of Charleston, South Carolina. I remember my first visit to the church when I was on vacation in Charleston. It's a beautiful historic church. I remember being filled with joy and sorrow when I visited The church and its leaders through much of the 18th century fought for religious liberty, believing that unless a person is free to reject faith, they aren't really free to embrace it either. I was proud of that. But at the First Baptist Church of Charleston, there's a balcony. And the seats in the balcony, they don't have cushions on them, they're like the ones down on the floor. It's just wooden benches up there. That's where the slaves had to sit during the segregated services a physical, structural wall of hostility, a way of saying you can only come so far. You can come to worship, but you have to position yourselves at the farthest out-of-the-way point. In the census of 1860, South Carolina had more slaves than non-slaves in the state, with 46% of South Carolina families owning slaves. Now, to bring this a bit closer to home, in that same census, Virginia was the largest slave-only State with nearly a half a million African-Americans enslaved by over 25% of Virginia families. And churches throughout the South and the country followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air. From our earliest days as a country, we put profits over people and that legacy continues And the legacy of those erected walls of hostility continue to rear their head in this country where people of color are systematically oppressed and marginalized at every turn. From education to incarceration, from economic uplift to fighting off a pandemic, people of color consistently face walls of hostility. The truth is, if if we as a church are to have any credible witness, we must be a people who display that Jesus has in fact destroyed the dividing wall of hostility And we work to dismantle systems and structures of oppression and thereby pointing to the liberating truth and power that Jesus reigns. There are, of course, other walls, other hostilities erected to communicate that the kingdom of God is only for some groups of people and not for others, or that you can only come so far because of who you are and no farther. Wherever we find those walls, walls that say to different nationalities, you're not welcome here. Walls that say to women, your work is limited here. Walls that say to the LGBTQ community, you can come but sit in the balcony. Walls that say to those with differing political positions, you need to get with it before you can come with us. Wherever we find those church, our work is to dismantle those walls so that we can display that in Christ is the opportunity for new life and new humanity. And because of Christ, we have an invitation to be a new human family. So what does that mean for us? Let me close with a couple of action steps for us. What does it mean for us as a, just a small church in northeast D.C.? I think it means a few things. First, I think it means that, that we pray, that we pray for unity. Jesus, in John 17, he, his last prayer for his disciples and for the church, just ahead of his crucifixion, the thing that Jesus prayed for was for Unity. He prayed that we would embody this new community that Jesus created through his completed work on the cross. It means that we pray for unity. It also means that we display this new humanity in our local setting. It means that at Christ City, we must, as much as God would bless us, that, that, that we be a church where enemies become family, where sons of slaves and sons of slaveholders holders. Uh, shed the the hostile history and form a family of justice and reconciliation where daughters of oppressors and daughters of oppressed find their mutual healing, where those that have built walls of hostility and those affected by those walls live into the truth that Jesus is the one who destroyed the dividing wall of hostility so that we might find life together in him. And lastly, I, I think that for us as a church to live into this, it will require that we walk in humility with one another. There can be an in pride that comes when we feel as though that we've arrived at some measure of maturity. We have to be careful with our sense of arrival. When we think that we've arrived at some measure of spiritual maturity, we can begin to look down at those who aren't where we are. When we think we've arrived at some measure of holiness, we can lose patience with those that we view as less holy, however we measure that. When we see ourselves as having arrived at some level of wokeness or understanding of progress, we can judge those we view as not having arrived with us. And when that happens, I think Paul is right to again echo that constant reminder that all of life is grace, and all of our arrivals are by grace, It is by grace that you've been saved through faith. This isn't of yourselves. It is a work of God, not by works, lest you boast. But because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. And let us cling to that life and let us embody that grace as a community of faith, of diversity and difference. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. God, my soul and my body longs for the truth that is bound up in Ephesians 2. I ache to remember again that the salvation and rescue that I enjoy is because of Christ's work on the cross and the power of the resurrection. God, I ache to be located in a community of faith that displays the new human family that Jesus built in his suffering and in his death and in his resurrection. Spirit, I pray that you would, would you by your tenderness, by your grace, by your ongoing mercy, by your love for us, would you form us, would you form Christ City into that new human family? That you'd continue to remind us of our salvation, you would continue to remind us of our calling and our mission. I pray all of this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's right for us, the the first response in this moment to come to the communion table together, to remember the body and blood of Christ that was broken and shed for us, that it was because of Christ's body broken on the cross and because of his blood that was shed on the cross for forgiveness of sins that we were extended an invitation to a new humanity and gain entrance into a new human family. So wherever you are, whatever you have, I invite you to take your bread and just, and just break it to remember the body of Christ that was broken for you. And grab whatever juice that you have that represents the blood of Christ that was shed for you. Take this and remember the sacrifice and the victory of Jesus.